yeah, I get it. You're grinding towards the end of the semester for a lot of you. Others of you, you're just like, I'm just along for the ride every week. If you have your uh, Bible there, I invite you to go to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Tonight, uh, we are going to be looking at, studying, considering uh, Buddhism and what it looks like and all of the, the fun things that go with it. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3 tonight. We'll be looking at verses 16 and 17 to start with, but in reality, we're going to be jumping all around. Uh, Well, we'll be in 2 Timothy for the first part and then moving to the book of Romans uh, for the remainder of our time. So if you would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. Second Timothy chapter three, uh, verses 16 and 17. This is God's word to us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word to us, and we're thankful for it. It reminds us, especially this passage, that it is directly from him. Let's go to the Lord tonight in prayer. Father, we come before you tonight. For a lot of us, there are many, many pressures that are uh, coming at us, uh, different trials and pressure-filled circumstances that loom in the distance. And so in the moments to come, Father, we ask that we would be helped by your spirit to focus on your word and we might consider what it means to follow you. And as we consider what others believe, Help us not to be quick to point and laugh, but rather to point and weep. For we know that in the last days, many false prophets will arise. Father, for some world religions, it hasn't necessarily been in these last days. It's just been since you left this earth. So be with us tonight. We think of our friends, too, that will proclaim the gospel all over the city think of our friends, Father, at Cherry Street Baptist Church, and ask that you would help them as they seek to reach a part of the city that we are not reaching or uh, they are reaching, but um, Father, we recognize that we're not the only people that have the gospel, so we ask that you would help their ministry to increase and expand, and Father, we also think of our friends even at National National Heights Baptist Church tonight, Father, and we ask that you would Again, with other churches, allow their ministries to grow, their reach to grow, their their capacity and ability to reach people for the cause of Christ to grow. Because we recognize that much like what we sang tonight, heaven is not going to be just people from Crossway Baptist Church and the results of the missionaries and church planners that we sent out on the globe. But Father, we recognize that There are many churches who are preaching and proclaiming the gospel that need us to pray for them as much as we need to pray for or as much as we covet their prayers. So be with us tonight. Help us as we study to understand your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Buddhism will be the last major world religion that we will study that would 
be considered not linked to Christianity. In fact, Buddhism is actually an offshoot of Hinduism. Um, very, very similar. It was started by a man named Gautama Buddha. Buddhism is focused on reaching a state of enlightenment that comes from escaping the cycles of reincarnation. So nirvana is the goal, and, and not the band, uh, by the way, um, just for those music lovers. Let's get that joke out of the room immediately. Uh, nirvana is described as a mental state um, that is uh, the highest form of enlightenment, basically. It's estimated that there are just over half a billion adherents to Buddhism, but that number is growing because Buddhism in the world takes on various stripes and various forms, and there's so many different ways to practice it that it makes it difficult to be able to say this particular, excuse me, this particular group or that particular group. Its ethos is uh, social transformation, basically. Its goal is tranquility. There's a myriad of ways that it can be practiced here, and basically there's a very enticing option for people. It's very, very popular in the West, meaning in our country. In fact, there are a lot more people that you probably realize that are intrigued by Buddhism than you would really know because of the fact that it's all about tolerance. It's all about tranquility. It's all about inner peace. And if you know anything about the modern world, we are kind of really into those things right now, provided that that tolerance doesn't need to be extended to anybody who believes evangelical Christianity. But that's another sermon for another time in another place. Here in our culture, though, because of its influence, and you're not going to like this again because it's week two out of two where I take a crack at yoga. Um, basically, this idea of sitting in a lotus pr position and trying to empty your brain of all cognizant thought to get to a higher plane of enlightenment or practicing yoga to do the same thing is basically the base form of Buddhism. And in reality, at some level, yoga tends to serve as sort of a gateway into Buddhism. Uh, again, it, it depends on the person, it depends on the individual, but when you have secular people who don't know anything about God and something of a religious mindset can be found, Yoga tends to be a, a way into practicing Buddhism. We don't like to say that because then people who are Christians who practice yoga get upset and they get offended and they're like, you hate yoga. I hate yoga for different reasons, not any of them to do with their religious ties. I'm just being honest, like the idea of stretching and spreading myself so thin. Yeah, let's just be honest. That's a, more of a reason to not like yoga than because of its religious ties. But we have to be at least open enough to admit it does serve as a way into this particular religion. I'm also not saying tonight that if you practice yoga that you are going to become a Buddhist. I don't think it's that easy, but... I'm sure there are people who would love to tell you that. So, 
Let's talk, though, doctrine, because that's really what matters in a world that is obsessed with tolerance, tranquility, and inner peace. They really don't like to talk about doctrine. But if we're Christians and we're going to teach people what it means to follow Christ, doctrine is exactly what we need to talk about. It's what we need to emphasize. It's what we need to examine. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much stretching you do, you do end up believing something. And I think we give a lot of credence to different things that have absolutely zero bearing on what people believe. We'd rather fight over whether or not you can stretch on a mat than what you actually believe. And I think that becomes damaging to the cause of Christ. So tonight we're not going to be debating the merits of yoga, just like we didn't do that last week. But rather we're going to be debating the merits of belief. And so three things, right? Because Buddhism even more so than Hinduism, has a a myriad of beliefs. So we're going to take three, we're going to tackle them, and we're going to expose them for what they are in light of what Christianity teaches. So tonight we're going to start with the subject of authority, which is why we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for probably, you feel like, the hundredth time in this semester. But what's interesting is Buddhists teach that the... Tripitaka or Pali Canon are sources of they're the sources of Buddhist teaching. And depending on which particular sect of Buddhism is being followed, you may or may not have other writings. But in the end, each individual is their own authority. You're your own authority. I'm my own authority inside of Buddhism. Christianity teach the, teaches the exact opposite of this. And we want to make sure that we understand what people are reading and what they're believing but at the end of the day when you put yourself as their your own authority on your religious belief you end up in a terrible place why because humanity is not fit to guide themselves we're not even really fit to get up in the morning And if you did get up this morning, it's not because you decided to will yourself to life. Christianity teaches that the scriptures are to govern the actions and attitude of those that follow Christ. And what makes teaching this particular portion of the sermon so difficult, and even why I labor for the words, even though I have notes here in front of me, is because at the end of the day, I'm firmly convinced that I can teach you this week in, week out, week in, week out, we've come to it time and time again but at the end of the day there are so many christians who claim to know christ yet don't even know the bible i mean i can come and teach you week after week after week what you need to know about other major world religions and i can point you to the fact that scripture is the authority for christians but in the actual reality of life more often than not christians are governed more by what they want to do than what the Bible actually has to say. That's why in my notes I wrote, sadly and at times confusingly, the Christian functionally looks more like a Buddhist because rather than submit to the plain teaching of Scripture, the Christian begins to be their own personal judge of what it means to follow Christ. We take the parts that we like and we take the parts that we don't like and that's what it means to follow Christ. That's functionally being the same as a Buddhist. If you look at a part of Scripture... And you say, I'm not going to follow that because I don't like it. You are functionally a Buddhist. 
because you've made yourself your own authority. You've said, well, you know, this whole loving your neighbor as yourself thing is really kind of nice. But this whole sexual purity thing, I don't really like. So I think we're going to dive out on that. So we'll keep the love your neighbor as yourself, but this call to sexual purity, I'm not going to observe that. In a roundabout way, not only have you not, not only have you become your own authority, you also are not loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what the ironic part about picking and choosing what you want to believe about Christianity is because we like the things that Jesus said, but following them is much more difficult. My great fear is that you would sit through an entire series on following Christ versus other world religions and cults, and at the end, leave a more complacent Christian than when you began. Because you say, I have Jesus, and they don't. So therefore, I'm a better person than they are. When in reality, if you're honest, you masquerade more of what it means to follow Christ than people who don't even know him. Because you don't read his word, you don't know it, you spend very little time in it. You're not concerned with people around the world who don't know Jesus because you're not even concerned about the people down the street that don't know Jesus. It's very difficult week in and week out if I could just be transparent enough with you to study other major world religions, study cults, and come to you week in and week out and tell you the same basic stuff. People deny the Trinity. They deny the authority of Scripture. They deny the existence of God. We know these things. Yet none of them motivate us to share Christ more. In fact, if anything, they give us a pass to share Christ less because we know what other people don't believe. So I'd ask you tonight, what's the source of authority in your own life? Do you functionally decide what parts you're going to be a Christian and what parts you're not? Do you make choices? This is in, this is out. This is good, this is bad. And let's just make it a little bit more personal. So functionally, we're going to follow Christ, but in reality, that functional means I'm going to follow Christ in as much as it's comfortable for me. So as long as the service is the way that I like it, as long as the teaching is what I like, as long as the, the music is what I like, as long as... It's comfortable. Then I'll follow Christ. But let's not get too radical here. Let's not get too serious here. Let's not let the Bible actually govern my actions on a day-to-day basis. I think we're perilously close as a generation of Christ followers to equating what it means to follow Christ with whatever it means to be comfortable. So let's get in our holy huddles. Let's pay our pastors to teach us about other major world religions that we might be more well-informed about how people are dying and going to hell. And it never shakes us. It never moves us. It never stirs us. It never does anything to us. 
perhaps the reason why that would be in the American church is because so many people are coming and flooding into churches to hear more stuff when they're not even a Christ follower. If you can sit week in and week out, week in and week out, and hear how people are dying and going to hell and go, well, that stinks for them. You probably don't know Christ. But it becomes sermon after sermon, point after point, talk after talk, lecture after lecture, Bible study after Bible study of more and more and more and more and more complacency. And much like the church at Laodicea, Jesus would spew American Christians out of their mouth because they are so lukewarm. Well, that's authority. What do Buddhists believe about man? Well, let's flip over to Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to try to avoid preaching on these particular texts. Because I hope in the spring, Lord willing, that we will cover the first four chapters of the book of Romans. We'll see. We might get through three. In Buddhism, man is seeking to reach nirvana. Individuals are born subject to the laws of karma, but not without, but not with a sinful nature based on their performance in a previous life. So there's no sin nature. We're trying to get to nirvana. The laws of karma govern how we operate. We're basically being reincarnated time and time again. This is what Buddhism teaches about man. It is so opposite of what the Bible teaches. But isn't that what every major world religion has in common? They're always trying to make man better than what he really is. This is the problem. We want to tell each other that we're really better than what we really are. Even in this room tonight. We want to tell each other we're better than what we really are. But what does the Bible say about humanity? What does the Bible say about man? Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable there is no one who does good no not one verse 13 their throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have practiced deceit the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes and lest you think this is a new testament problem this is a direct citation from the old testament this is an Old Testament and New Testament problem. This is a Genesis 3 problem. Humans are bad people. And not just humans, all of humanity. Let's just hit the highlights here. What do we believe about man as Christians? Well, none of them are righteous. No, not even one of them. No one who understands what it means to follow God... And furthermore, even if we were to say there is one who might try to understand, Paul, in quoting the Old Testament, reminds us there's not even one who seeks after God. You didn't wake up one morning going, you know what, I think I might need to add a little Jesus to my life. Just tack on a little Jesus. Just a little bit of, let's just, yeah, let's try Jesus. 
No one does that. The most religious people in the world, and I use religious in square qu- scare quotes here. Not square quotes, scare quotes. The most religious person in the world is only interested in the things that Jesus has to say after someone quotes scripture to them. Because they're not naturally going after and chasing after God. This is why Edwards is able to say without impunity that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Because you don't go chasing after God. You don't chase him down. None of you woke up one day and you're like, you know what? I think I'm a terrible human being who needs someone to redeem me. No one does that. Who does that? No one does that. Romans 3.23. If we were to skip down. Paul says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So just in case you didn't think that that was worthy of condemnation, the previous verses that we read. In verse 23, he makes it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then let's flip over to Romans chapter 5. By the way, this is called the Romans road. This is a great way to tell people how they can know Christ. If you're like, I'm terrified to share Christ with people, take them through what is commonly known as the Romans road. Show them their sinfulness. Show them how they fall short. That's what we're doing with man right now. We're, We're saying, everybody, you, me, everybody. Just like the Blues Brothers saying everybody needs somebody to love, we can say as Christians, everybody needs somebody to redeem them. You, me, them, everybody. Everybody. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. They're like hitting us with the highlights here. Yeah, you and I sinned. And to the, the pious person who's like, if I was there in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have sinned, you're wrong. And number two, you're like, well, I'm not Adam. But we understand this corporately. How many of us experienced in life people on teams that commit fouls, the whole team gets penalized? How many of us were part of groups where one person made a mistake and the whole group is punished? One need only think of certain individuals that were probably in your class in school who resulted in whole places. I went to a Christian school, and those people know no mercy. Some of those elementary education people, I think they got trained in elementary education by Moses with some Old Testament wrath. Because kids would mess up, and it's usually like, fine, nobody gets recess. And I'm like, are you serious? Are you even serious, Clark? How does that moron's activity disqualify me from outside recess? It's not an inside recess day. It's outside recess day. Sports are flying everywhere. We're n- we all ha- I'm going to kill that kid. Even right now, I can think of specific people where I'm like, if I ever see that person again, that's probably not godly at all. So it's not uncommon then for us to know what it means for corporate punishment to take place. Not corporal, but corporate, meaning all of us. Some of you also know what corporal punishment is about. I also went to one of those Christian schools. Look at Romans 6.23. 
let's just put the nail in a coffin on this. And that is a pun intended. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where we start to turn the corner. But we want to make sure when we talk with people that they understand that Christianity teaches that all of mankind is sinners. There's no one who's exempted. No exceptions. No, if you go down this pathway, you're exempt or you're out of the running for being considered sinful. All of humanity is sinful. Which that ought to lay heavy on our chest at night when we think about why we're not going anywhere to share Christ with anybody. Are you guilty of thinking about man in ways that are not true? Like you want to try and make things cleaner, brighter, more hopeful for them. Do you give people hope that is in themselves rather than in God? This is the problem of a Pixar generation, by the way. Just be the best you you can be and that will be good enough. Being the best you that you can be is good enough to get you a ticket straight to hell. If we're not careful, we can buy into a culture that tries to make us better than what we really are. So what's the great hope then? Well, it has to be salvation. What about in Buddhism? So, right, we're talking about Buddhism. What, how are you saved in Buddhism? Well, the individual is saved upon removing all desires and attachments to the world. Each person can achieve the state of nirvana having their existence extinguished and removed from the cycle of reincarnation and suffering. So that's the goal. Have your existence extinguished and removed from the cycle of reincarnation and suffering. Christianity teaches the opposite. Flip over to Romans 5. I would say this is the most controversial verse in all of scripture Romans 5 8 but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us he's making a way of escape for us that isn't getting to a mental plane that escapes the cycle of reincarnation and suffering it's not about emptying and getting rid of your existence it's about putting your hope in someone else rather than yourself Instead of trying to clean yourself up, it's by putting yourself in the hope of someone who has already cleaned up the world. And I don't mean to clean up the world and made it a better place right now. We know that that's in the future. That's coming. He's going to redeem the whole world. But he's made the world a better place in this sense. There is no requirement of shedding any other blood for the remission of sins because that was done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, David, you seem to be very amped up tonight about this whole salvation thing. I am. Because I think we've lost our awe of it. I think we've lost, we've become complacent. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Big whoopty stinking do. He died on the cross. We know that. Who cares? We got that, David. Well, if you are that complacent about it, you don't get it. In the book of Romans, one of my favorite passages when talking about justification and, and this idea that Christ is our perfect sacrifice. is this idea where Paul basically 
puts everybody on the roast block, if you will, and says, look, you won't barely die for a righteous person, let alone an unrighteous person. You barely die for the valedictorian of your high school class. And for some of you that were like salutatorian, you're like, I would definitely wouldn't die for that guy because he was blocking my pathway to glory. You wouldn't die for the person who does the most community service for no reason. Someone wants to shoot that person, you're not stepping in front of that bullet. Let alone somebody who's unrighteous by your standards. Not even unrighteous by the world's standards, unrighteous by your standards. Person who cut you off in traffic on the way here, you're like, okay, take him out. You're not taking a bullet for that guy. The person who takes forever deciding what they're going to order. They've been staring at the menu for 15 minutes. Nothing's changing. It's all the same. And it has been the same for the last 45 years. Order. You're like, I'm not dying for that person. They can't figure out what they're going to eat. That's not even really unrighteous people. That's your standard of unrighteousness. But I guarantee you this. If we were to take this room into a sentencing hearing for a mass murderer or for a serial rapist or a pedophile, and we took this whole room and the judge is ready to declare his verdict. And the judge pauses and says, is there anyone in the room who will stand in his place? Nobody here is going to be like, I'll take it. I'll take the life sentence. I'll take the death sentence. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll stand up. I'll stand in the gap. This person could go free, and I'll take his punishment. I'll take the punishment that he deserves. She deserves. I'll take it. I'll step in their place. No one in this room does that, according to Paul. And I think Paul's right, and I think you know that Paul's right. But where Paul flips the argument is he says, but there is one person who stands up in the back of the courtroom and goes, I'll, I'll stand in his place. I'll stand in her place. I, I'll do it. I'll take it. I'll bear all of their punishment for them. And I will do it without even the judge asking. Jesus is like the kid in the front of the classroom who knows the answer before the teacher asks the question and goes, ooh, 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 pick me. knows this, it's the Father's will that he goes to the cross. He's volunteering to go. And he lays his life down willingly for all of humanity. For the worst. And guess what? He doesn't lay down his life for the worst and the best because everybody's the worst. Our temptation is to look at other world religions and go, what a bunch of morons. Their eyes are blind. Their hearts are darkened. And the only thing that can awaken them is the word of God through the Spirit's power. So the question becomes tonight for us sitting in the room. What are you trusting in for your salvation But more importantly, what are you telling other people to trust in for theirs? 
Because probably the majority of the people in the room go, I trust Christ. But what are you telling other people to trust in? Because more often than not, if we're honest, we're not very passionate about this. Because we get distracted easily. I'm just trying to think about my role in your life and how to encourage you and spur you on in a manner of love and good works, according to Hebrews chapter 10. I was reminded again of a particular love that I had as a small child. So I went to the best place ever, the internet, right, to figure out some information. Because I had never really done much studying about what this person is like. But um, growing up, it was way different than it is now when it comes to movies. So there are a lot of movies that I've seen in my life. Um, I've watched via this old thing called cable TV that basically cut out all of the bad stuff that they couldn't show to minors. And so now when I watch movies, I'm like, oh, I can't watch this. This is bad. This stuff wasn't on cable TV. It's because they couldn't show it. Um, But I didn't know. Anyway, one of those great movies was uh, Top Gun. It's a phenomenal movie. Um, And I was in love with Top Gun uh, for all the wrong reasons that any 10-year-old boy would be in love with Top Gun. Most 10-year-old boys who watch Top Gun are in love with Tom Cruise as Maverick. You got Goose, the wingman. In love with the fighter pilots. I was not. I was enamored by these guys who sat on the top deck of an aircraft carrier and would launch F-16s out into the sea. I just thought that was so cool. You go like this, and an F-16 just right by your ear. Why I thought that was amazing, I have no idea. But that's what I aspired to, probably because I understood two things. One, I was very bad at math, even at a young age, and knew that probably you had to use math very well to be a pilot. And two, I'm also terrified of heights. So again, spinning around in a metal tube, 30,000 feet probably isn't going to be a good combination for somebody who struggles with math and is terrified of heights because when you get fearful, you start to panic, and when you start to panic, you lose all the ability you already don't have to do math. So I understood my place and I understood my role. Well, come to find out, that person is what's known as a boatswain's yellow shirt, which is basically a fancy way of saying the guy who wears the yellow shirt on the deck of an aircraft carrier. That guy, though, is in charge of everyone's safety on top of that deck. And his primary job, his or her primary job, is to get planes in position to be launched off of the aircraft carrier. That's his job or her job. She she or he is responsible for that. I'm trying to take that approach to this particular role. We tend to elevate pastors and put them into roles that they probably don't deserve. And you're far too enamored at times with us than what we really deserve or should have. When in reality, our responsibility as your pastors is to safely get you into position to launch you out. And here's my great fear. 
a lot of you are in the flight room and you're really comfortable with studying maps and talking about the enemy and talking about what it means to fly the plane and oh yeah let's grab another cup of coffee and discuss strategy and meanwhile there's a yellow shirt up on top of the deck of the aircraft chair going where is everybody we got a whole bunch of planes and nobody to fly them because all the pilots are in the flight room going well you know have you considered this strategy or that strategy or what about this strategy or that strategy or maybe we need to learn a little bit more about the enemy yeah let's bring in the 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 lead pilot and he can lecture to us about the enemy some more and so what we have is a whole room full of pilots who are like yeah, this is cool. I love the idea of flying. And I think I finally figured out my frustration in life. My job is to get you to the flight deck and go, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Leave. And take this message to the people around you. Because you guys and I are called to take this message to the people around us who believe this stuff, who believe every cult and world religion we've ever talked about in this series. But my fear is we've all become very, very comfortable sitting in the flight room going, just a little bit more strategy, just one more sermon, then I'll share the gospel. One more Bible study. One more conversation. One more... And the list goes on and on. And the problem is, is that we have three flight rooms. We have Wednesday nights, we have Sunday nights, we have Sunday mornings. And, and really we have four, because we have small groups. And so you're like, just a little bit more. And I want to just say to you, go. Go. Some of you are going to have friends and family around you this holiday season that don't know Jesus. Go. Engage. Who cares if you don't have all the answers? Do you think the apostles had all the answers when they first went? They're growing. You read the book of Acts. These guys don't have it together. Go. You're intimidated. And I get it. What are we going to do? We meet somebody who holds to one of these cultural world religions? What are we going to do? We're going to engage them with the gospel. But the more likely story this week is that the person who needs to be engaged with the gospel right now in your life is not the Buddhist, is not the Jehovah's Witness, and it's not the Mormon. Well, it could be. It may just be, though, that the person who you need to engage is the person who's sitting right next to you week in and week out. Or the same person that you see every day when you go to whatever spot it is that you go to. Or the person at your job who needs Jesus. Engage. Fly, go, take the gospel, get out of the flight room, get up on the deck and, and launch out for the cause of Christ. 